In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary, we don't know the contrast organically. That was Three Teeth, the industrial metal band from Los Angeles, California. I am your host of Meditations and Molotovs, Vince Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. Well, it's been a while since I've spoken to everyone. Um, we've played, let's see here, we've played... I'm already a little off track. I'm trying to get my uh, my internet here up rolling. All right, here we go. So, yeah, we played – what did we play? We played The Trap in all three parts, Adam Curtis's documentary film. And then I recently wrote an article for Z Communications originally entitled Free Range Chickens – and yoga won't stop climate change. I believe Michael Albert reposted it as consumer activism. But that's at zcommunications.org. Check that out. The essence of the article is or has to do really with individual action as opposed to collective action. There's also quite a bit in the article about socialization. So... Part of what I've been talking a lot about over the years is the unwillingness and inability for people to simply socialize with one another. So sit down, BS, talk about serious issues, discuss these things with neighbors and strangers and friends and family. And for a lot of people, it's increasingly difficult to do so, not particularly because of any kind of outside force, but because of what people are choosing to do with their time. And so in the article, I referenced a report from CNN that stated that, quote, adults in the United States devoted about 10 hours and 39 minutes each day to consuming media, unquote. So think about that. 10 hours and 39 minutes of watching TV, playing video games, messing around on your iPhone, iPad, or computer, personal laptop. That's a tremendous amount of time. And it's time that can be better spent on other things. It's just really that simple. We are, as a nation... And as a culture, spending less and less time with each other and more and more time with devices, two-dimensional screens. So if the vast majority of Americans now spend half of their 
24-hour day or almost half of their 24-hour day with two-dimensional screens, what does that mean for our prospects of creating and building a new society? A society built on different values and institutions that would reflect those values. And those are difficult conversations. I was speaking with a friend of mine last night who incidentally also lives in the same building in which I live. Different unit, but same complex. And he often asks, what is this vision for a new society? What is it that we're fighting for? The immediate things are easy, of course. It's sort of what would traditionally be considered sort of liberal slash social democratic reforms. And these are a lot of things that, say, the Bernie Sanders campaign brought up. Universal health care. Subsidized secondary uh, education. Jobs programs, infrastructure programs. Uh, renewable energy programs, uh, taxing corporations at a higher rate, taxing the rich at a higher rate, using that revenue for social programs. Those are the sort of reforms that we should be fighting for and that I think a lot of people are already fighting for on a regular basis. I think the challenge becomes addressing those immediate concerns while simultaneously building for something in the future and building for the future. And that seems to be another step altogether. So I know of a lot of organizations and people who are working on the very issues that I just mentioned. However, and this isn't their fault uh, specifically, nor is the problem only theirs. This is a problem across the entire left and not just in the United States, but also worldwide. Now, of course, some political movements in some countries in different regions and in different contexts are dealing with this issue differently than we are in the United States and even in places in the United States. Different movements in different regions are dealing with these issues in better or worse ways than others. And, of course, the organizing contexts matter greatly. So it's sometimes quite difficult to take organizing advice from, say, someone organizing in Oakland or San Francisco or Seattle or Portland when you're living in, say, Youngstown, Ohio or Michigan City, Indiana. Now, there are fundamentals that will be the same, and those are the kind of things that we can learn from each other. Those are the kind of things that we should be pointing out and using, and we should take the best of these organizing practices and then apply them wherever we're at. But that also takes effort. You have to reach out to people. You have to contact folks. You have to invite people to give talks. You, know, you have to build relationships with people so hopefully you can stay in contact with those people and continue to develop your thoughts and, and practices in terms of organizing. So the effort aside, we should be taking 
the best of organizing practices from around the country. And so if there are fundamental things that we could learn from, say, activists or organizers in Seattle or Portland or Oakland or San Francisco, that's great. We should use them and vice versa. But I do think that the context matters greatly. And so it is difficult at times, I think, to relate organizing experiences on certain issues and in certain ways. But I find it very useful to have these discussions with organizers and activists from around the country and indeed around the world because I'm less interested in the differences and more interested in the overlap. You know, what are the, the very similar things that we are all dealing with and what do they look like and how are uh, different organizations and activists and so forth addressing those issues? What kind of methods are they using? What's working? What's not working? That, of course, should be an ongoing conversation, but we don't really have mediums for that either. It's interesting, and I think, well, there's a few things at play here. I mean, number one, I think people have a difficult time talking about strategy, tactics, values, vision, program. And then if they do do all of that, the next step, which is probably even more difficult than coming up with those things, is then sitting back, reflecting, and then revising your values, your vision, your strategy, your tactics, your political program. Because a lot of people put a lot of time into those things. So it is understandably bothersome for some folks when people come in and say, hey, well, well, we've got to drastically change this political program or the way that this organization is operating or the way that this campaign is operating. Because oftentimes the people who are engaged with those organizations or campaigns have spent an inordinate amount of time on them. And in them, doing a lot of work. And like anything else, when you put a tremendous amount of time into something, it's very difficult then to look back and to say to yourself, well, we really screwed up here, here, and here, and we did this wrong, and we did that wrong. And it's even more difficult to then change those things. There's a lot of people who will recognize and identify different kinds of criticisms, but then it's very difficult then to change those things as well. It's one, as my friend says, it's one thing to know, it's another thing to do. And that really nails one of the major issues I have with a lot of my friends and acquaintances, people I grew up with, family members and so forth. A lot of people know what's going on. A lot of people know climate change is happening. A lot of people know you know, governments and corporations are destroying the planet. A lot of people know that there's tremendous racism, both subjective forms of racism and also systemic forms of racism taking place in the United States and around the world. There's a lot of people who know the banks are screwing us. They know the corporations are corrupt and running wild. They know the government is filled with cronyism. But it is another thing to then do something about those issues. And that's where confidence, I think, comes into play. I also think that empowerment is a big part of that, and both of those playing off of one another. I think the more confident someone is, the more empowered they will be, and I think the more empowered people are, the more confident they will be. So by participating, a lot of people, I think, build up that confidence. And by having a firm grasp on what your values are, it's then much more difficult for people in power to persuade you of political programs 
that are contrary to those values. You know, sometimes people get very confused by the system. I mean, sometimes people also sort of degrade themselves in a lot of ways. They'll say things like, well, I don't know, you know, the economy is just so complex and I don't really have much to say about it because I'm not an economist. Or they'll say things like, you know, because I see this all the time, say in local meetings with uh, developers, particularly economic developers, of course. They'll come in and they'll use a certain kind of language and they'll speak in a certain way and with enough confidence to intimidate a lot of people in the room who sort of know better. You know, they know when they're sitting there listening to some developer talk about how this next project is going to be a game changer, quote unquote, for Michigan City. And they know in the back of their heads, they've heard this before for decades, and they they know in the back of their heads that what they're talking about really are either big box stores or uh, corporate chains or even mom and pop stores that are going to pay people minimum wage, nine, ten bucks at best. That's if they're lucky. They know that those jobs aren't going to have benefits. They know that those jobs aren't fulfilling or empowering. Yet, they will refrain from saying something about that because they feel very intimidated by the sort of details of those projects and the lingo and the concepts. And that's a big part of what political activism should be about. A big part of political activism should be empowering people with the knowledge and the tools necessary to challenge people in power. It shouldn't be this sort of monopoly of information or a monopoly of knowledge or a monopoly of wisdom. It should be a spreading out of those things. So the more people talk with each other, the more that they share these ideas, the more they educate each other through classes and teach-ins and conversations and essays and books and so forth, the more people should be feeling empowered to then take the next step and do that for someone else. That's sort of the point, as I've described it before, with our community space in Michigan City. But even through any other form of activism, the point isn't to concentrate that power in the hands of a few people or organizers or activists or intellectuals or artists or whoever. The point is to spread that out. And the more, as Michael Albert mentions in a lot of his work and also in his recent book, the more we can avoid replicating the institutions and the systems of power, obviously the better off we'll be as a political movement, as individuals, as a potentially revolutionary movement that seeks to radically change society. And we'll get into some of that in the second part of the show as well, because I'm going to be reading some passages from Michael Albert's latest book, which is called Practical Utopia, Strategies for a Desirable Society. I just started on it. I got it uh, earlier this, I think it arrived on Friday. And so I didn't get a chance to sit down and start reading it until I think Saturday or yesterday. Things have been busy and there's been events all weekend, so I just haven't had time, to be honest with you. But it was it's excellent so far. I think I'm about 30 pages in now. I'm starting on, I believe, chapter three. Yeah, chapter three. So I'm about 25 pages in. It's good. It's very good. And it's you know it's a it's a sort of a distillation of everything that 
uh, Albert has been Michael Albert has been writing and and talking about for many years now. His most famous work, of course, being the uh, participatory economics and ideas around what participatory economics is and what it could look like and what alternatives to this current system would would potentially be. And those are the sort of interesting conversations that we should be having. We have not evolved for as long as we've evolved to live under a system that many people, and here I had great, I take great exception with a lot of the mainstream economists who essentially treat capitalism as though it's some sort of religion, the so-called market or the so-called free market and the invisible hand. Um, I, you know, it's an, it's interesting that in today's context, we have very few alternatives to look to. And so someone like Albert's work, some, some, you know, this book and the work that he's done in the past, I think becomes increasingly important at a time when our current institutions and systems are obviously failing us and do not represent the sort of values in which many of us hold true. So the question becomes why so few books and so few thinkers and so few columnists and commentators on the left who do this sort of thing? Why is that the case? And here again, I would argue that people, number one, I I think, well, there's a few things at play. I think, what would I say? I would say number one would be there is a certain level of laziness that it is quite difficult actually to think about these things. It's much easier to simply make a critique of a system. It's much easier to write an article about how everything's going to hell in a handbasket as opposed to an article about how we may deal with that. So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is people react in a very negative way sometimes when people do propose alternatives. And here is something that Michael and I have talked about for a long time. You know, people aren't necessarily encouraged to come up with alternatives or to, I mean, not only to not think about them, but also then to write about them and to put your ideas out there. And as soon as you put things out there, and I'm not trying to garner any sympathy for uh, writing publicly, anyone who does anything publicly, I think needs to understand what comes with that, which is an intense amount of criticism especially in today's world of social media and emails and all the rest. But that being said, if you're going to be out there publicly writing about these things, and if you're going to publicly write about alternatives, you can guarantee that you will get a lot of people who will poo-poo those ideas. For lack of a better term people will you know people will shit all over it they will and that's okay Uh, as soon as you put something out for public consumption it's open to public criticism and that's the way it should be Uh, however I will say that I think the left is well we're always particularly rough on each other which I think is a problem but I also think that it's an issue that 
when people come up with alternatives, they're immediately shunned, or criticized, or alienated, ignored, at worst maybe, or at best, who knows. But that's an issue. And if we want people to, if we want to encourage people to be imaginative, we want people to think and to create, then we can't be hypercritical of them when they do so. Is it okay to be critical? Yes, of course. But the sort of criticism I see directed at people who offer alternatives is some of the worst criticism uh, that I see, not only online, but even in person. So I don't think we should leave it to the sectarians to offer an alternative vision and worldview. And I still remain unconvinced that using traditional language such as socialism, anarchism, communism is the best route to take for the left, especially here in the United States, but I would say also globally. I just don't think people are going to get excited about uh, socialism. I just, I just don't see it. Is there evidence to suggest that people want, uh, especially say younger people in the United States, that they want more progressive policies? I think there's more than ample enough evidence to suggest that. And there are polls that show that young Americans, uh, see socialism or concepts of socialism in a more positive light than previous generations and or at least than the previous generation and that obviously makes sense because of the context of the cold war and mccarthyism and all the rest but i don't see that being the rallying cry like some sort of socialist party or some sort of socialist ideological dogma you know we want the state to run things uh, we want a, just a better form of the state. I mean, here at least I do give our anarchist friends a lot of credit, and this is something that both Chomsky and Albert mention in Albert's book. Chomsky gives the introduction. I'll probably just read that because I think it's really good. But I do give our anarchist friends a lot of credit because they have, are, have been and remain at least those who are principled and serious, critical of any institution that wields great power and of concentrated power. So not just limited to capitalist entities or corporate entities, the state, religious entities. This is where I think anarchism of the varieties of the main varieties, I guess, ideological varieties that exist on the left, I think has the most interesting things to say about how power works. Now, I don't know enough about it. I, I'm not a student of anarchist ideo ideology, so I, I, I can't say that I know enough about it to make the sort of critiques that I've heard other people make. And I'm not really aware of some of the excesses of some of those things. Uh, I've heard crazy stories. I would have to look up some of what I'm talking about so I don't make all my anarchist friends angry. But it's the same, obviously, for – well, not the same. I think it would be a false equivalency to compare former communist and socialist regimes or even current with 
the ideological strain of anarchism, the political philosophical strain of anarchism. I don't think you could say, and I don't think anyone has necessarily offered up a, a specific vision of what a so-called anarchist system would look like. There's more critiques and tendencies and so forth that are discussed. In any case, that probably, probably is a good segue, actually, into Albert's book. I didn't really go through current events, but if you want to check out that article that I did write for Z Communications, there's two different forms. Both of them are on my Facebook page. Just search me at Vincent. Or no, it's Vince Emanuele, V-I-N-C-E-E-M-A-N-U-E-L-E at Facebook. You'll see me there. And I posted it. Uh, a couple days ago, but it is right here on the front page of Z Communications. That's Zcom, Zcom, C-O-M-M dot org. It's right here. And that is uh, Emanuele Consumer Activism. So check out that article. Another great article from Tom Dispatch that everyone should check out was Alfred McCoy's latest article. I forget the name of it, but there's also a great interview at The Intercept with Alfred McCoy, Donald Trump in the coming fall of American Empire, Jeremy Scahill interviewing uh, Alfred McCoy. And it's very, very good. I mean, Alfred McCoy is as good as it gets. He's just a monster, just an intellectual monster. And we'll be, we will miss these kinds of folks. Something about the kind of time and effort and focus and discipline that it takes to write numerous books about American empire and to be meticulously researched and to have the command of knowledge that people like McCoy and the late great Chalmers Johnson and people like Noam Chomsky have, I think is uh, really a, a blessing that we have those folks around and we're very fortunate. In any case, check out that article as well. Donald Trump and the Coming Fall of American Empire. That's an interview with Jeremy Scahill and the historian Alfred McCoy, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. That's via The Intercept. So check that out as well. I know I said I would go over some current events, but I didn't really see too much. I scanned a little bit on social media earlier. I didn't really see too much of what was going on, if there are any big news stories. Oh, I did mention that I wanted to talk about the, what do you call it? Progressive, the Progressible. It's like a festival and a progressive, The two you get it, two things together. It was good. It was a good event. They had it, it was uh, yesterday, Sunday in Valparaiso, Indiana at Zao Island, which is a sort of, what would you call it? Let's say it's almost like a fun amusement park type of thing. It's like miniature golf and bumper cars, go-karts, driving range, batting cages, arcades, that sort of thing. It was fun. I haven't been to the place since I was much younger. It's way different, and it's a lot bigger. It looks like they're doing very well for themselves, so I guess that's good. Um, it was good, though. I mean, there was a lot of different groups there. What's interesting to me is the amount of groups that are focusing on the environment. One of the more interesting groups, I'm not going to remember the name of it. That's how interesting it was. No, I'm, I joke. 
I'm joking. Jesus. Um, gosh, darn it. I'm going to forget. It's like 219 Environmental Connect or something. I'll post it. I'll share some of their information on one of the social media pages, Meditations in Molotovs, Park, my own page. But they had a lot of very interesting things to say about the environment. You know, they they really understand, I think on some level, the severity of the situation, and they spoke to that at the event. Everybody who tabled at the event had an opportunity to go up and kind of give a couple minutes or five minutes, I think was the limit, um, where they're coming from, what they're about, what they want to do, what they're interested in, what different projects they're working on. I don't really think anyone took the five minutes, though. It was really nice, actually. Very few times are you in a room with those type of folks, myself included, and people go under time instead of over time. So I tried to keep it brief and short. Sergio explained some things about Park. I mentioned some upcoming events that are taking place in the month of August. And that was about it. He had, you know, essentially what I was trying to get across was that this is a participatory process here at Park, where I'm sitting right now as I record this program. We want people to participate in the process. It is a, to use an old term, a do-it-yourself. Do it it's a DIY space. It's not about what we can create for you to consume. It's about what we can all create together so we could all participate in that process and then also enjoy it and, and experience it together. So that was what I tried to get across. You know, I think people are interested virtually everyone I spoke to is extremely interested in the, in the space and people want to use it. People want to come and promote their work and what their organizations are doing. And I think all of that's great. That's exactly why we got the space to begin with. So I was very happy with it. Thank you to the organizers of the event for putting it on. It was really well organized. There's a ton of moving parts. There was a ton of groups involved. It was a very hot space on a very hot day. And uh, everyone managed to do well. And I think everyone got a lot out of it. I don't have any criticisms other than the existing criticisms that I have for not just the people who put on the progressive and not just for progressive political movements and, and organizations in Northwest Indiana park and the Michigan city social justice group being two, but we all need to work on making our movements and organizations and events more diverse. It's just that simple. It, I, a big part of it has to do with social circles. I remember reading an article during the 2018 election. I'm sorry, 2018 election. I remember reading an article during the 2016 election from the Washington Post that indicated that I think 91% of white people in the United States have one or less black friends. That's replicated to a great degree in progressive movements, extremely fractured and separated, not all, both ideologically and racially. Ethnically, and well, actually, not just ideologically and racially and ethnically, but also along lines of gender, also along lines of class. And from the one end, 
it will do no good to ignore those things. And those things were, aren't going to just happen naturally. So for white progressives out there who are saying to themselves, well, someday this will happen or naturally it'll just happen or, hey, I've kind of thrown my hands up in the air. I don't know what to do. We hold these good events and none of these people of color ever show up to the other end of all these white progressives just don't give a shit. Oh, you know, like I've seen the sort of like snarky comments and, and not legitimate critiques and, and good substantive critiques, but just snarky comments and you know, playing into these sort of identitarian games and so on and not offering up any kind of solutions or offering up any kind of advice as to how to actually make that happen just to sort of call out white progressives I don't think is very useful. Sometimes, of course, people you know, you need to talk to people about their politics or you need to talk to people about their lack thereof. But at the same time, I don't think it does anyone any good to just call out white progressives for their organizations being too white and then not offer up a political program to fix that or remedy that because I would assume that's what we all want to do. I mean, I'm not interested in just making these critiques for the sake of making critiques and I'm not just interested in being the most, uh, as the young kids say, woke person in the room for the sake of being woke and for the sake of being, you know, making myself feel good because I have like a one leg up on my understanding of gender or the economy than my neighbor or someone else. That's not the point. The point is for everyone to learn as much as we could possibly learn in the time that we can learn it so that way we could apply it and to keep learning and to keep applying it, you know, so I'm not interested in snarky comments about white progressives and I'm also not interested in the sort of willful ignorance of white progressives who fail to intentionally take on the task of integrating our communities and our political organizations. I think that's a reasonable position. So once again, thank you. I kind of got off on a rant there. Thank you to the folks who invited us to the Progressive. I'm going to forget everyone's names. And my voice is going because I've been talking all weekend with folks. So excuse me. I've been occasionally trying to drink some water. But yeah, I, it also didn't help. I think I was singing on Saturday. I came in and the community space here. We had a meeting with some city council members talking about a welcoming city ordinance for immigrants that were trying to pass in the city. It's It could be quite a struggle, although now we have more people on board than we had a couple weeks ago, so that's a good thing. We're going to have more meetings this coming Saturday. So spoke a lot that Saturday, just talking with folks. And then jumped on the microphone in the PA system and started listening to some music and singing along with it. Pretending like I was, you know, somebody like Scott Weiland up here. <laughs> and then, uh, the next day, yesterday was the progressible and spoke to dozens of people there for several hours and now just speaking nonstop into a microphone for the last 40 minutes or 36 minutes is up. It's been taking a toll on my throat. It probably also doesn't help that I've been smoking cigarettes lately. And I didn't give up after the last vacation I was on, which was the plan. So now I have to do that sometime in the future. But it's an ongoing struggle. It's very interesting addiction on any level. I find it interesting. It's interesting who and why 
who's addicted and why they're addicted and all the other rest. So, oh shit, my friend, <laughs> I just so happened to click back into Facebook. <laughs> my friend Anthony said, oh, you pulled the old Marco Rubio move. That was a great moment, actually, on national TV too. The dry mouth just had to like stop the whole fucking show and go straight for the glass of water. It's priceless. And since I'll be talking about public speaking this evening, I'll probably mention that that's not the way to go. But, uh, yeah, no, nah, it, well, it's tough. It's like you have to keep talking, but then there's moments of silence. Try and keep people entertained. I don't know. I listen to a lot of different podcasts, too, so it's interesting to see how different people do different podcasts. I talk with my friend Sam Love about this. Just kind of the ways in which people go about these different things are infinitely fascinating for me. So, I mean, there's some people who do it in these natural landscapes. Like I saw a podcast the other day where this guy had the same exact microphone I have, this uh, – the hell is it called? The blue mic or whatever. And he just set it on his patio table and him and his friend sat outside and drank beers and smoked cigarettes and bullshit. You could hear the birds in the background, your cars going by. It wasn't bad actually at all. I kind of like it. That's why I left the doors open today at park. I'm trying to get some fresh air in here. It's like 73 degrees outside. It's beautiful. I like all the natural sounds. But anyway, I'm going off to get back on track. Let me actually promote a few things, too, before I get into reading some of the stuff out of Albert's book. I want to promote some events coming up. So let me check my event page here. Okay, so tonight in Valparaiso, there is a March for Medicare for All. This is put on by the Hoosier Women on the March, the Community Strategy Group, and Blue Valpo. The event is organized in partnership by Hoosier Women on the March, Progressives in Action, Northwest Indiana, the Community Strategy Group, NWI Now, and Blue Valpo. If your organization is interested in partnering on this event, please let us know in the comments. Learn more about sponsoring organizations below. Join Porter County residents in downtown Valpo to speak up for our belief that healthcare should be a human right, not a privilege in America. There is a great speaker lineup with Reverend Cheryl Rivera in this Community Strategy Group, Rick Stark with Progressives in Action NWI, Elaine Coffey, retired professor with Hoosier Women on the March, Julie Storbeck with NWI Now, Terry Stiegel, a union member with USW 1010, and Candace Shaw with Blue Valpo. We will march around the courthouse, square on the sidewalk only, in solidarity with millions of others across the country in support of Medicare for All. All right now, our head of, right now our healthcare system is under threat by an administration that wants to cut Medicaid by 35% over the next 20 years, causing 23 million people to lose their health coverage by 2026. Across the country, Americans have begun to stand up and speak out about this attempt to destroy our humanity when we need the most help. The current proposals in Congress that would eliminate equitable access to health care reveals the burden and fear that comes with losing it. Even in our current system, millions of Americans are being left behind, and the time has come for all of us to stand together and demand better. We are a collective of everyday Americans taking to the streets to demand that access to quality care be expanded to all people regardless of income. We chant healthcare is a human right as we change the business-as-usual mentality that holds our health and well-being captive to a healthcare model that places profits over people. It's a shame that they will only be on the sidewalk. They should take over that godforsaken town in Valpo. Anyway, show up anyway. You know, at, 
I've spoken about this a million times in the past. I don't ex- you should not expect to get anything out of marching in terms of a direct response from the people in power and the decisions that they make. However, it is good for people to show up to events like this, to talk with other people, and to see, I think, for many people, this isn't necessarily the case with me, but it is the case, I think, with a lot of other folks, to just see like-minded people, to talk with like-minded people, and to be like, okay, I'm not alone out here, particularly for those people who are living in areas like Northwest Indiana or in counties like Porter County, where there's not too much happening in terms of progressive politics or radical culture or anything much really in in the way of those things. So I think it's important. It helps empower people, keeps people engaged. So yeah, show up. That's tonight, 6 PM Porter County courthouse, 16 Lincoln wave, Alparaiso, Indiana, six to 7 PM. It's going to be a beautiful, it's like 73 degrees by the time that starts. Also, for those who want to go to the Michigan City Social Justice Group public meeting, that's tonight here at Park, 1713 Franklin Street, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Check it out. We're going to do some group info and updates. The subcommittees will check in. We'll have community announcements. I'm going to share some tips on public speaking, and Rob Leland will follow up on the Michigan City 2040 plan and strategy so come on out check it out hang out with everybody it'll be a good time usually after the presentations people stick around for a while and talk and hang out eat pizza drink some beer with each other whatever they want to do also to call it freedom well this is coming up now actually i'm, I'm gonna wait but just actually since i mentioned it to call it freedom Saturday, August 12th, keep this in mind, Saturday, August 12th, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. here at Park Politics, Art, Roots, and Culture, 1713 Franklin Street, Michigan City, Indiana. That event is at 5 p.m. on Saturday, August 12th. We will explore the dimensions of liberty and freedom during the revolutionary era. Freedom during this period will be examined in its conceptions and the conditions that made American liberty possible, the barriers to freedom, and who had access and enjoyment of that freedom. Light refreshments and beverages will be served before the event. This event is free and open to the public. So come on out. Check it out. Dan Rambis, otherwise known as Alex Sarajewski. He's probably... <laughs> wonder if anybody will hit him up. He is going to... Let's see. He sent me a bio. Let me read it. Alex Sarajewski has been a part of the Northwest Indiana's Indiana community for a lifetime and now serves it in the capacity of a teacher. Sarajewski currently is a public high school teacher in Gary, Indiana, teaching social studies. Alex has been working with students since 2015 to build a community of learners, leaners, and to build a community of learners, he didn't spell that correctly, that focuses on giving students the skills to think like a historian. Well, before they can think like a historian, they better learn how to spell. No, I'm just messing around. <laughs> I look forward to it. Alex is a charismatic cat. He's funny. He's good people. He's got great politics. Um, come out. Check it out. Listen to him. Give a nice presentation. And I've always been interested with this concept of freedom and these concepts of freedom. Something that's always fascinated me. I'm think, I think here, and I referenced it in the essay I wrote for Znet of Eric Fromm's book. I think it's Escape from Freedom, I believe. 
Maybe that's a European title. Nevertheless, those are the events coming up. Check them out. Be interesting. I know I said I would be doing, we would be doing, but I specifically have been talking about doing documentary film showings here at Park. Well, we need to do a couple of things. We need to hook up a speaker system so we can run the speakers to the projector or the laptop and have a nice sound system for the movies. It's been a problem when we've had pre- presenters so far, just that lack of volume. And then also we need to mount this thing on the ceiling or somewhere so we can not have the projector taking up the seating space. I'm sure you can kind of imagine what I'm saying. When you have the, when it's not hanging from the ceiling, you have to set it up somewhere and then it sort of blocks the view of other people and the way that you could set up the chairs. I think, I think you understand what I'm saying. Anyway, we'll do that soon enough. That'll happen. We're, we're going to figure out what the times look like for the Spanish as a second language class. We'll get that kicked off when, hopefully when the school year starts. And then we'll have a music event. I didn't announce it because not quite sure when it's going to be. I'm waiting to hear back from a couple of folks who are helping me organize the event. But right now, tentatively, August 25th, so keep that in mind. It'll be a good time. We'll have live music probably from about 6 or 7 p.m. till about 1 a.m. If it doesn't work out on the 25th, then we're going to do it, I think, on September 8th. But for now, tentatively, August 25th, 6 p.m., park, again, here in Michigan City, 1713 Franklin. Live music, spoken word, whatever, throughout the night, whatever you – and if there's anything you'd like to do, send us an email and let us know. Send us a message and we'll make it happen. But we'll have some musicians, and we're going to showcase our friend Ron Buffington and his music because it doesn't really play out that often these days. And he's a great guy, and he's getting up there in age, as my father is as well. I think somebody said Ron was 73. My pops is 70. So, and we don't have those folks around forever. So it's important to enjoy their time and your time with them. And for someone like Ron, who a lot of people know in Michigan City, this is really a great opportunity to play somewhere other than the bars. And there's nothing to say about the local bar scene. But, you know, I can imagine as Ron's gotten older that it's he's less and less inclined to want to go out and deal with a bunch of drunks on a Saturday night. So I look forward to our first music event here. And even we've got some close friends like Tony Bianco who are going to play some short sets. So that's going to be fun. It's going to be really fun. So I'm looking forward to it. We'll be selling beer and wine. So come on. Have some fun. And we'll do like a suggested donation, five or ten bucks, and then we'll do the, uh, you know, we'll do um, beers probably for like three bucks a piece. Make them cheap. So that's it for upcoming events. What do we have? We've got about ten minutes left here. So Michael Albert's latest book, Practical Utopia, Strategies for a Desirable Society, out from PM Press. Check it out. Probably one of the most important books you'll read this year, if not in a lifetime. And that's not an exaggeration. As I mentioned earlier, there's very few people who have dedicated themselves to writing about what a potential revolution would look like and what revolutionary practices and thoughts and strategies and values and all the rest look like for activists operating in today's world. And so 
I'm going to read a portion, if I can get through it, maybe the whole thing of the preface from Noam Chomsky. And again, for those who want to purchase it, this is Practical Utopia Strategies for a Desirable Society by Michael Albert, prefaced by Noam Chomsky, published by PM Press. Okay, it is tempting and plausible to regard the current historical period as an interregnum in Antonio Gramsci's sense, recalling his words on the crisis of his day, which, quote, consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. The morbidity of many of the symptoms is all too apparent and the crises are all too real. The crises of our day come in two forms. Some are merely very serious, while others are literally existential. In the latter category, there are two crises, each posing challenges that have never arisen before in human history, literally challenges of survival for humans and innumerable other species. In their most critical form, both of these crises can be dated to the end of World War II, the first crisis is the nuclear age, which dawned on August 6, 1945, a day when those with eyes open understood that human intelligence had devised the means to destroy the species and much else along with it. A review of the record of near accidents and reckless actions of leaders reveals that it is a near miracle that we have survived this long, and such miracles are unlikely to persist. One of the most sober, respected, an experienced nuclear strategist, William Perry, never given to exaggeration, says that he cannot understand why everyone is not as terrified as he is at the realization that today the danger of some sort of nuclear catastrophe is greater than it was during the Cold War. And as he knows very well, the world has come ominously close to terminal war all too often. Perry's judgment is not readily dismissed, particularly when one considers what is happening at the Russian border and the policies and rhetoric of the two major nuclear powers. The permanent crisis of the nuclear age, with its regular near explosions to terminal catastrophe, is deeply rooted in the structure of the nation-state system that has developed in recent centuries and will not be easy to dismantle in favor of a more humane and civilized social and political order. The second existential crisis, which is already well underway, is also deeply rooted in core institutional structures of modern society, which will also not be easy to dismantle. The environmental crisis, termed by geologists the Anthropocene, a new geological epoch in which humans are radically altering the environment in ways that portend major catastrophes, these catastrophes are already being endured by species that are rapidly succumbing during the sixth extinction, now in progress, and threatening to rival the fifth extinction some six, 65 million years ago, when 75% of plant and animal species were destroyed after a huge asteroid hit the Earth. There has been debate about the dating of the onset of the Anthropocene, but professional opinion is converging on the same time as the out onset of the nuclear age, the end of World War II. Whether the crisis can be brought under control in time is not all that clear. And as in the case of the nuclear age, a look at the reactions of systems of power is far from reassuring. 
Instructive, illustrative examples include Denmark, Germany, China, and the United States. Denmark and Germany are aiming to reach full reliance on renewable energy within several decades and are taking serious steps towards that goal. China, already well in the lead in developing and producing renewables, primarily solar and wind, has announced plans to spend more than $360 billion through 2020 on renewable power sources, also creating over 13 million jobs in these industries. What about the United States? It had been a participant, even sometimes a prominent participant, in the enterprise of confronting the crisis of global warming. But that changed radically on November 8, 2016, with the victory of a political organization that is, quite literally, dedicated to destroying the hope for survival of organized human life. The last comment should strike readers as extreme, if not scandalous, until they look at the simple facts. In the Republican primaries, every candidate either denied that what is happening is happening or said that maybe it is, who knows, but we shouldn't do anything about it. The candidate hailed as the adult in the room, Ohio Governor John Kasich, declared proudly that, quote, we are going to burn coal in Ohio and we are not going to apologize for it, unquote. The winning candidate, who dismissed global warming as a hoax, calls for rapid increase in use of coal and other fossil fuels, dismantling of regulations, rejection of help to developing countries seeking to move to sustainable energy, and in general racing to the cliff as fast as possible. In brief, all three branches of government in the world's most powerful state have been taken over by a political organization dedicated to destroying the hope for the survival of organized life. No exaggeration. And a fact that should elicit regular screaming headlines in a free press. All of this came to a head on November 8th of last year when some 200 nations were meeting in Morocco to try to put together some, or I'm sorry, to try and put some teeth into the 2015 Paris negotiations, COP21, on climate change. It had been hoped that COP21 would lead to a treaty with verifiable commitments. But that hope was dashed by the refusal of the Republican Congress to accept binding commitments. The COP22 meetings intended to address the stunning failure. On November 8th, as the electoral results came in, the proceedings pretty much came to a halt. The prevailing question was now whether the enterprise would even continue with the most powerful country in the world, in history, in the hands of an organization that not only refuses to participate but is dead set on undermining possibilities of success. Delegates look to China as the hope for rescuing the world from the re- wrecking machine that now controls the leader of the free world. An astonishing spectacle which passed with virtually no comment. The neoliberal assault on the world's population in the past generation has been regarded very highly by elite opinion. Much has been made of the remarkable decline in global poverty during the neoliberal period, commonly overlooking the most, the not so insignificant fact pointed out by political economist Robert Wade, among others, that the achievement relies very largely on China, which paid little heed to the doctrines of the faith and others who took the same path. In the United States, professional and other opinion was awed by the grand success of the great moderation managed by the skillful hands of Alan Greenspan, St. Alan, as he was sometimes called, 
until the whole edifice crashed magnificently in 2008 with the bursting of a multi-trillion dollar housing bubble that somehow escaped notice, apart from the very perceptive economists like Dean Baker. I'm not going to be able to finish this intro, but I will talk more about the book in specific sections of the book, and I suggest you check it out and read it. I'm going to suggest that the, the uh, book club here, the Michigan City Social Justice Club, Social Justice Group Book Club, uh, pick up the book as well, and then we'll eventually have Michael on the program to talk about the book. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. It's been several weeks since I've done a program like this, so it's nice to be back. I hope I will talk to you also next week. You can find the same time, same place, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you have been listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary, we don't know the contrast organically.